the reading of the scriptures from Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 to 10. So I invite uh, your reverential attention to the public reading of God's holy and living word. And may we hear it uh, both with joy and faith. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. In our last uh, study uh, uh, together, we looked at uh, the final uh, servant song in Isaiah chapter 53, and we learned of the imminence of the success of the servant, uh, our Savior, uh, Christ. Our, our text this morning uh, gives to us uh, what, uh, in a measure, that success looks like. Uh, chiefly here, it's uh, incredible numerical success, uh, and that is uh, explained uh, fully in the passage that we have uh, read uh, for our occasion for worship this morning. As you know, from a broader contextual standpoint, uh, the prophet is telling the people of God that uh, greatness of God will restore them. Uh, here it breaks in a figurative way on a widowed and barren wife. And again, God comes and promises uh, her success. Uh, he will take her again to be uh, her husband, and she will bear many sons. Uh, 
the promise, of course, uh, ultimately fulfilled uh, in the church. Tied to the success of the servant son, again, the success that was explained in Isaiah chapter 53. The text is broken down in uh, two parts. Uh, verses 1 to 4 contain a number of, of commands. And then verses 5 to 10, followed by the divine nature and the application of redemption, uh, securing uh, uh, the numerical success of the church. Let's begin with the imperatives. Uh, verse 1, uh, the first is to shout for joy. Based upon what? Well, based upon the work of the servant song. Uh, you know from previous lessons that I believe that the servant songs have their fulfillment in Christ. Uh, some are confused on that. They see it to be Israel, numerous explanations. Uh, to me, it's quite clear uh, Christ is the servant son of Isaiah, and he is eminently successful, and our text this morning tells us in a measure what that success looks like. The addressee is a barren one. There's a figure for Jerusalem in captivity, but again, much more expansive, ultimately breaking upon the church. Uh, who is the bride of Christ. Uh, the bride is, here is uh, an estranged wife, but now by the work of the servant son, uh, God comes again as a faithful husband to restore her. And she will have many sons. The text, of course, uh, is an allusion to Sarah, uh, the great Abrahamic covenant, Abraham and Sarah, held to the promise that God would give them a son. But she was barren. Uh, but we know because God issues the promise that the promise will be fulfilled uh, because of who God is and what he can do. In this text, uh, there will be many sons. And that's the reason that, that uh, the people of God are to shout for joy. That we should be as a church, a joyful people, because God is going to expand the church numerically in an incredible way. Uh, the next imperative uh, is that they are to enlarge their tents to accommodate the many sons. Again, verse 2. Uh, God promises that the barren wife will have many sons, and so what do you do when you have many sons? Well, you go get a bigger house. In this case, enlarge your tents. Uh, and the reason, verse 3, is that the sons will proliferate and eventually fill the earth and possess the nations. A majesty, again, of uh, the promise of God that the church is going to be triumphant. It will triumph. Uh, and the descendants of the church will possess the nations. If you will, cover the earth. Uh, redeemed uh, humanity will cover the earth in incredible uh, numbers. In an immediate sense, Israel did not do this because she lapsed into unbelief, but a true Israel will. Uh, and confirmation of this comes uh, from the way that the New Testament uses this, this passage, in particular Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 1. So if you have your New Testaments, turn with me, if you would, to uh, the book of Galatians in the fourth chapter. What I'm suggesting to you is that the Apostle Paul is going to cite Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 1 as having fulfillment in the church. 
the church becomes the many sons as promised to the barren wife in Isaiah chapter 54. Uh, the theological backdrop, of course, is the Abrahamic covenant going to be fulfilled by Christ and in the church. Let's look at uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 26 to 28. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman, who does not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. The context, as you know, is Paul's theological clash with the Judaizers who mix two covenants together synergistically, uh, namely the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. So they come to the church and they say Christ plus, Christ plus something. In this case, Christ plus circumcision. So you can see in their affirmation uh, of what they proclaim to the church that they are mixing the Abrahamic covenant with the Mosaic covenant. It's a fatal error. Uh, but nonetheless, fatal errors come into the church, and that's why Paul is writing this epistle uh, to say that it is Christ alone. And he is telling the church that they are sons of the Abrahamic covenant. They are the sons of promise. In light of the reality of Christ plus nothing, the true fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, by the way, this is a wonderful illustration that numbers must be tied to the truth of the gospel. Uh, we can all expand the church in terms of human designs and human programs. Uh, we can manipulate people to grow anything. Uh, but the point of this text is that the numbers of the church must be tied to the truth of the gospel and that, of course, is succinctly the work of Christ alone. The reality of the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled by Christ as he gathers many sons. Now, the use of the Old Testament here, of course, is typological uh, with an escalated fulfillment in Gentiles coming to faith in Christ alone. Let's look at how Paul expresses this in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. That's a literal uh, citation of the Abrahamic promise. To Abraham and to the seed of Abraham. Now notice what Paul does with that. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So the great Abrahamic covenant of promise has its far-reaching fulfillment in Christ. And what will Christ do? He will gather many sons. And that's exactly what we have in verses 28 and 29. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The massive numbers of Gentiles coming into the church the days of the apostles are the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And because of their faith in Christ, the promises to Abraham are fulfilled in all who have faith in Christ. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, it makes no difference when you have faith in Christ. And what Paul, of course, means by that is faith in Christ alone, not 
faith in Christ plus human works plus circumcision in the case of the Judaizer. You cannot mix the gospel. Uh, the church grows uh, because of the work of Christ, and that, of course, is the work of Christ alone. And so he interprets the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant to be in Christ, and by extrapolation to all who have faith in Christ as spiritual sons. The church is a spiritual entity, birthed, of course, by heaven. And all who identify with Christ by faith are heirs of the Abrahamic covenant and promise. Again, the historical account, it's the backdrop for all of this, is Genesis 16, the promise to Abraham and Sarah to have a son. Uh, you recall the account, Sarah was barren. And she thinks that God needed her help. And so she gives her handmaid to Abraham, Hagar. And there is a son, but not the son of promise. It's not the way of God. God does not need our help. Uh, the two women represent two covenants, law and grace. Paul links Hagar to Sinai and the present-day Jerusalem, a city of religion and ceremony and, of course, law works. It's a great illustration, is it not? To purify our faith in the majesty of the work of God alone. That God doesn't need us to supplement the work of Christ. He works the promises of grace. We don't add to it. And whatever we try to add to it in terms of religion degrades the principal object of the majesty of the grace of God. If Christ needs my help, then what does that say about his work? And that's why we confess to believe in Christ alone. And so Hagar represents that which is false. Sarah should not have given her handmaid to Abraham, her husband. God can affect the promise. Of course, Sarah represents Mount Zion in freedom. And this covenant corresponds to the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the point of, of Paul citing Isaiah chapter 54. Uh, he explains... Uh, the reality of the promises of God and the Abrahamic covenant to be fulfilled in people coming to faith in Christ alone. And he cites Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 1 uh, to prove uh, that reality. But more importantly, it's the truth that heaven is the origin of the spirit and power that births the church in supernatural redemption by a supernatural power absent our help. It's a wonderful reality of the power of God. He creates life. So again, uh, the Apostle Paul citing uh, Isaiah chapter 54 in Galatians 4 and verse 27. It's our reminder, again, that Ju the Jerusalem above is the freedom of the gospel and she is our mother.
It's a lot of reality in this text, I, I think, that we ought to really consider more deeply in the life of the church. A lot of Christians are looking to the present-day Jerusalem, the latitude and longitude of Jerusalem in the Middle East. Our mother is heaven, not an earthly city. The power of God from heaven to create the sons of God. More importantly, uh, it's our reminder uh, that God creates his sons and uh, we don't help him. Uh, we don't bring works and say, aren't you pleased with what I've done? Won't you therefore give me redemption? No, he redeems us. He saves us by his power because we were dead. The power of God alone generates the church and all of its numbers and its vastness and its greatness. I mean, think about religion in the way that Sarah thought about her handmaid. Well, I have the promise of God, but something's not working, so uh, I get it. God needs my help. She gives her handmaid to her husband. No, it's the reality that the promise of God, God will work it, God will fulfill it, God will make it happen. And we know that that period of time goes on for a long period of time, do we not? Paul tells us and affirms that to us in the book of Romans. He said, when their bodies were as good as dead, Sarah had a son. Way beyond the biological clock of a woman's ability to bear a son. Long since passed. And yet what happens? The miracle of childbirth. Sarah has a son. It is the same with regeneration, the new birth. We were dead. God makes us alive. And he does that in terms of incredible expanse and numerical success. It's the point of Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 1. Many sons stream into the church in the apostolic ministry, fulfilling ultimately Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 1. And the reality that go expand your tent because more sons are going to come by the power of God. It's expressed in terms of the reality of the gospel in uh, John chapter 1, in the new birth, who were born not of blood. It's not an ethnic thing. Uh, you're not a Christian because you were born into a Christian home. Uh, it's not by ethnicity. Again, the prologue to the gospel of John, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. None of these things can work. They will not work. And yet, what does John say? Who are born of God. It's the power of God to generate and to bring sons of the faith. The power of God. That if you're a Christian, you are a Christian because of the new birth. You were born of God, absent any participation in your part in terms, again, of the new birth. That we are sons of promise, the Abrahamic covenant. That Sarah bore a son by the power of God way beyond her ability to bear a son, but the promise of God is not subordinate to human biology. And thank God it is not. It's the same with us. We bring nothing, and yet God births us by his sovereign power. It's the same reality of John chapter 6 and verse 63. 
The spirit creates life. The flesh profits nothing. It's the reality that our mother is the heavenly Jerusalem and she bears many sons by the new birth and heaven has the power to generate these sons. And heaven has been doing it and will continue to do it to fill the earth with the sons of God. You recall in the Abrahamic covenant, God tells Abraham his sons are going to be like the sands of the sea, like the stars of the sky. Again, figurative numbers, of course, uh, but it's an expression of the numerical success of the power of heaven to birth many sons based upon the work of the one true son, Christ. Fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in him who will gather many sons, sons to glory by the power of heaven. Again, I believe that the greater fulfillment is in the church. Not the present city of Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem. The power of God, the promise of God, the blessings of God. By the way, if you're not a Christian, you cannot do anything to save yourself. You must go to God. It's his power that saves and his power alone. Again, the gospel of John, who were born by the will of God. Now, that's the gospel. The question now becomes, in the prophecy of Isaiah, is will these numbers, will these numbers hold? If there are going to be many sons, will they remain? Will they hold? It's a great question in the church today. In terms of the nation of Israel, uh, they're thinking, well, God took us into captivity. Will he do it again? Will the promise of sons hold in the promises of God? In terms of Christian theology today, most churches hold that you can come to faith and then by your own actions fall away. Isaiah has something to say about that in the promises of God based upon who God is and what he does and the way that he works. And I will tell you as a prelude to verses 5 to 10, the sons of God will hold, and they will hold forever based upon the promises of God. The expanse of the church is followed, verse 4, by the imperative not to fear. The reason is that God will vindicate the church. Isaiah 54, verse 4, we will not be put to shame. The promise of inheritance will come to pass because it's a promise of God. When God promises something, it means that it is effectual because it's based upon him. I can promise lots of things, but I may not be able to affect them. It's not so with God because of who he is. God that is all-powerful, all knowledge, all wisdom, all goodness. He promises the Son that there will be many sons. It will be so. So the church is a worldwide institution. Uh, every day, numbers are streaming into the church as men and women, boys and girls, come to Christ by faith, believe and hope in him as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And because it's based upon the power of God and who God is, it's our security is totally and finally realized in Christ in the person of God. And that's where Isaiah now takes us, beginning in verse 5. 
He's telling us in short that the promise will hold. The numbers will be great and they will hold. Verse 5, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. It, in terms of theology, it's our reminder that the promises of God are based upon who God is. And who is God? He's the maker of the people of God. He redeems the church. And he's the God of all the earth, meaning that he's sovereign, the God of all power. So when he promises, he can affect the very promises that he makes. You know, in terms of physical realities, in terms of human birth, we, we live in an age in which occasionally, not so prominent today as it was 50, 60, 100 years ago, but uh, Certainly women on occasion have miscarriages. There are no miscarriages in the divine promise of redemption because of the power of God. In our world today, we, uh, we, uh, we kill unborn infants. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, men and women don't want them, and so we, we simply kill them. The world calls it abortion, but I mean, it is what it is. In the divine promises of God to gather many sons to glory, there are no abortions. He loves them all. He will gather them all in his power, in his sovereign grace. He wants them all, and because he wants them all, they will all come. The greatness of the power of God. I mean, I love the words of Jesus. All that the Father has given me will come to me, and I'll raise him up on the last day. No abortions, no miscarriages in the promises of God because of the greatness of our God. No premature deaths in divine providence. He will gather all of his sons to everlasting glory. He promises it is so. It is so because our coming is tied to God's effectual calling, verse 6. For the Lord has called you. Let's look at just a couple of New Testament realizations of what this means. First uh, Corinthians chapter one and verse nine. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son. God calls us into fellowship with His Son. And how is God ascribed here? God is faithful. He is faithful to Himself. He is faithful to the promises he made to Abraham fulfilled in Christ and he's faithful to Christ to gather many sons. No sons of God will be lost. Based upon what? The faithfulness of God. Christians who believe that the saints can fall away don't understand the faithfulness of God. They make the reality of the promises of God based upon our faithfulness. God forbid that we're based upon our faithfulness. Our hope is it's based upon the faithfulness of God. And God is faithful. He promises sons. You know what the church is going to get? Many sons. So many they will cover the earth. Because God is faithful to himself and to his servant son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Romans chapter 11, verse 29. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They cannot be changed. The promises of God are immutable. The promise of the success of the promises of God cannot be changed. They are immutable. They will occur. Thank God they will. I love that short, simple text. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God calls many sons. They will come because God will make it so. You and I are expressions of that. We came to a personal saving faith in Jesus Christ. How did that happen? The power of God. We were born of the will of God. He made it so. We're the sons of God by the new birth. And the heavenly Jerusalem is our mother. What a great mother to have, heaven itself. And all of the promises of God will be fulfilled because of who God is. And his calling is irrevocable. That here God takes a bride of all men without distinction, and she will never be put off again. It's a promise, ultimately, I think, that breaks upon the church. Ephesians 5, Revelation 21, we are the bride of Christ. He is purifying us and will take us unto himself. So again, uh, the numbers will hold because of efficacious calling. The sons will come. Uh, secondly, latter part of verse 7, Isaiah chapter 54, with great compassion, God says, I will gather you. In a human sense, we come to Christ. Uh, we have faith in Christ. I, I don't wish to belie that or belittle that. But in terms of heaven, God gathers his people. He gathers them and so they come. Uh, greatest uh, harvest of all of the world. God harvesting his sons uh, from the entirety of the human population, gathering uh, those whom he has chosen unto himself. Again, calling and then gathering. The calling of God, of course, is efficacious. It's effective. It will happen because he has the power to bring all that he calls. Here in this text, the calling is linked to gathering. God harvests his sons, and they will be numerous and many. Uh, thirdly, uh, verse 8, uh, the gathering is uh, linked to uh, a compassion uh, of, of everlasting love. If you look at New American Standard, but with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion upon you. The word uh, loving kindness uh, has, I think, a very powerful sense of the loyalty of God. Uh, we need to recover that in our own culture. The loyalty between God and his people, the loyalty between God and his bride. He is faithful, uh, and it's everlasting. That's another reason we know the answer to the question, will the sons of God stand? Yes, they will, because the compassion of God is everlasting. His loyalty to his sons is everlasting. It has no end. It will not run out. Uh, he will never put us away again. 
like he did Israel of old. Uh, we are of the sons of the promise. And his loving kindness to us is eternal. I mean, how much greater can a promise get than to be uh, tied to the eternality of the power of the God of heaven? God is loyal to his people. Something of, of uh, the great promise of God in the great uh, shepherd psalm. Uh, psalm 23 uses the exact same word of the prophet Isaiah, of the loving kindness of God. The New American Standard reads, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. The loving kindness of God following us wherever we go, keeping us as his sons, based upon his loyal love uh, that's eternal, that's forever. Again, the promise realized, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But the very word of the prophet Isaiah, loving kindness, used in uh, Psalm 23, uh, the attribute of God that follows us, that runs us to ground, that sees us to the end of our destination in heaven. It's a loyalty that embraces redemption, and so again, uh, the divine name is attached in the prophecy of Isaiah, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So think of the string God calls, he gathers, and he purchases. And his love and compassion make it so. The majesty of our salvation is nothing more than the majesty of the goodness of our great God who gathers us from the four corners of the earth to be numbered as the stars of the sky or the sands of the sea. It's a gospel. God gathering his people. And, of course, they are many sons. On occasion, perhaps, uh, like me, you've gone to the beach. I don't know that as many times as I've gone to the beach I've ever seen anyone counting the sand. Because, because it's just an impossible task. I mean, I understand little children playing with buckets and making little castles, whatnot. I've never seen anyone counting the sand. The numbers that will flow into the church by the power of God and the power of heaven will be so great and so expansive that they are almost innumerable. And how can it be so? Because of the greatness of our God, his power. Heaven come and invades the earth and gathers his people based upon his calling and his attributes. I love the reality that our salvation is tied to the attributes of God rather than ourselves because if it was based upon us, it'd be tenuous, wouldn't it? It'd be kind of shaky ground, shifting sand. God doesn't say, good luck, I hope you make it. No, God makes it so because of his love, his compassion, his power, and the promise to Abraham and the promise to Christ, the servant son. That's our salvation. Many sons, and they will hold because our salvation is based upon the goodness and the greatness of God. The text closes in a radical, verses 9 to 10, a radical affirmation of this. 
Again, I would tell my brethren who think that the saints can fall away. They really need to relook at who God is and his love for his people and his power to keep his own. Isaiah 50, 54, verse 9 and 10, that God takes an oath. Like in the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again. And so God takes an oath never to destroy the earth by water again. And so we've never experienced another flood. I'm not so sure we're not as wicked as we were as the people were in the days of Noah. But we're not going to be destroyed by water as it occurred in the days of Noah. So God has taken an oath to his church to call together into redeemed. And the expanse will be great and innumerable based upon the oath of God, the word of God. The God who cannot lie, who is immutable, has taken this oath. We will stand. We will not fall away. We will be great. The number is expansive, and all of us will hold uh, because of uh, the power of God. Uh, something of the theology of uh, James, uh, chapter 1, in verse 17. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Our salvation based upon God and not upon us. And with God, there is no shifting shadow. He's the father of everlasting light. He's gathering uh, his people. And as God took an oath after the flood never to destroy the earth again, as in the days of Noah, so he affirms never to cast his bride off again. The anger and rebuke of days gone by is over forever. Lastly, uh, we read uh, beautiful words, verse 10. My covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Uh, again, the middle phrase of the text, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. Again, another word that speaks to God's loyal love. God is loyal to himself. He is faithful to himself uh, and to his promises. Mountains and hills are fixed geographically, immovable and unshakable, and so is God's love and covenant of peace. He has made peace with us through our Lord Jesus Christ and that it is a perfect and efficient work based upon the work of the servant son. The peace is everlasting. Couple of verses that express this, Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 26. And I will make a covenant of peace with them, be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. The power of God gathering his people, his presence with us forever. The great promise of Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The world today in which you and I live is desperate for peace. Peace in families, peace in homes, peace in marriages, peace among nations. Good things to behold, to be sure, but uh, the greatest reality is to have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
asking if you're not a Christian. There is no peace for you. The promise is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Flee to him. Go to him. Ask him to save you. Ask him to be gracious to you through his power and through his love. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how does the text close? The promise of expansive numbers. Expand your tents. They're not big enough. Based upon the promises of God who makes it so. And what concludes the text, the covenant of God says the Lord who has compassion, the divine name and the divine attributes in total and absolute affirmation of the fact that God will expand our numbers and we will, we will hold forever because of the power and the grace of God who is forever. So the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled in Christ, Galatians chapter 3, that gathers many sons, all who have faith in him, faith in him alone, many sons, massive numbers, and he secures them forever. Again, the promise of the Gospel of John. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will raise them up on the last day. Massive numbers, but our son forgets none of his beloved sons. The promises of God in the Son to many sons. There's another reason we hold, and that is constancy of the provisions of God to be sure, but one of the ways that that is expressed is in the sacrament of the Lord's table. We hold because God provisions us and he is with us. If you think of the Lord's table built upon the theological construct of the Passover meal, uh, blood was paced, placed upon uh, the doors of the house and the angel of death passed over. The Apostle Paul emphatically declares, 1 Corinthians, Christ our Passover. The blood of Christ has washed us, marks us, and the angel of death passes us by. Christ, our Passover. Christ then, of course, uh, takes uh, the Passover meal and escalates it in the sacrament of the Lord's table, the bread and the wine. Now, he comes, I believe, as a spiritual presence to meet with his people uh, when we receive him and acknowledge him by faith. Uh, at Grace Bible Church, the a sacrament of the Lord's table is open to all who confess Christ and have been baptized, who are not under church discipline and who are not living as some known sin for which they are unrepentant. So if you're here this morning and not a member of Grace Bible Church and you, you wonder if uh, uh, you can partake this morning, uh, decisively you can because of Christ. If you have faith and trust and hope in him alone, uh, it is the Lord's table and not the table of Grace Bible Church. Uh, but it is the reality of that which is signified by the sign of the bread and wine uh, that to support the uh, spiritual life of the church, uh, Christ came down from heaven and he nourishes and sustains his people uh, by reminding them of his presence, that by faith he nourishes us uh, as we have faith in him. 
backdrop in the Old Testament was the manna and uh, the water, but for us it's the bread and the wine. As the uh, bread is uh, broken and, and passed, I encourage you to engage the Lord in silent confession if need be. If there's something that you need to get right about, then this is an occasion before you partake. Uh, but at some point in the silence of your, your prayers, uh, give thanks to God that the greatness of your salvation is based upon his greatness, not you. His sovereign grace, his loyal love, his eternal promises, his covenant of peace made between Father, Son, and Spirit that secures you, that burrs you, that gathers you, that calls you, and that will make you stand forever in his presence, who is with us even today. Now, please hold the bread until which time all are served so that we might manifest our unity and, and partake together. And so Christ, the bread of heaven, the sacrament of the Lord's table, 